It's been said that every quilt tells a story, and it's so true. But I also believe every quilter has a story to tell. I wanted to hear about the people behind these wonderful quilts and thought you'd enjoy hearing about their lives also. Welcome to A Quilter's Life. I had the opportunity to hear Mary Mackinson Zeziger speak locally at the Blannerhassett Museum. We were able to meet in person to record her story. If you have the opportunity to check out her episode page, also known as show notes, on a Quilter's Life website, you'll want to take a look at her quilts that she talked about during this interview. Mary, thanks so much for joining me on A Quilter's Life, and I wanted to mention I so enjoyed your lecture this past week at the Blannerhassett Museum. Thank you. I am very honored for you to choose me to be part of your podcast. Oh, it's great to have you. Let's start with, tell us where you were born and raised. I was born and raised in a very small little town in suburban Philadelphia called Ridley Park, Pennsylvania. It wasn't big enough to even be a town. It is caught between two big highways, so it's only a borough of Ridley Park. I went through school there, and my father actually grew up there and went to the local high school there. It was on a little train line that went from Philadelphia to Wilmington. And he was a dentist and eventually opened an orthodontic office in Ridley Park. But because of that train line, people were able to get to him. So the train was a very important thing in Ridley Park. Growing up in the town where your parent had grown up, were any of the teachers still the same? when you? They were. Mr. Waltz, I can't think of his first name, he taught geometry and he had taught dad and then had, I don't know how many of us girls. I never was very good at geometry, though. I wish I could take the course over again right now and maybe I would understand it a little bit better. We use it so much in what we do now, yeah. Yes, but I didn't connect any of that at the time. I did go from Ridley Park to a program in nursing at Ohio Valley General Hospital School of Nursing in Wheeling, West Virginia. My mother also graduated from that program, and I finished as a registered nurse, and I've done a variety of things in nursing, but after 50 years, I retired. (laughs) Did you do... A specialty in nursing? Well, I worked in labor and delivery and absolutely loved it and could feel confident about what I was doing. And it was during that time that I came to know that I enjoy a repetitious task. Everybody that came through that door had the same problem. There were about 50 medicines you could give a pregnant person, so I'd learn how to spell them and what the dosages were. And we would go through the same routine to get ready to the delivery room and so forth. We only had about eight doctors, so it was easy to have the specifics that each doctor preferred. And then once we got to the delivery room, I would challenge myself to be observant enough that the doctor didn't have to ask me for anything. And 
I loved every minute of the time I spent there. The last eight years I worked was with the National Marrow Donor Program, which is now called the Be the Match Registry. We were a donor center in Columbus, and we held bone marrow drives recruiting people to the program. Because I had phlebotomy skills after working with the American Red Cross for six years on the blood mobiles that traveled everywhere, if any of our donors came up as matches, then we drew the blood samples and sent them to the transplant center or to the National Testing Lab for infectious disease markers and made the appointments for my donor. And then on harvest day, either my partner or myself would deliver the product wherever it had to go. Unless the transplant center sent a courier to pick it up. But my partner delivered bone marrow product twice to Australia. Wow. That's one long trip. 23 hours of travel one way. Well, obviously it would be in a cooler or something, but... Oh, yes. That time didn't affect it? They were on ice packs and the temperature of the product was taken every so many hours. There was a whole protocol that she had to follow, but they consider it that there are enough viable cells to find their way to the bone marrow of the patient and begin to reproduce the red cell, the white cell, and the platelet to sustain life. It's amazing. We just don't realize what's all going on. And there's so many details to everything. Yes. Yes, there are. And it's frequently in an investigational protocol. So there's a lot of research, a lot of paperwork, a lot of record keeping that we did every day to assure that this product is traceable and all of our steps were according to the protocols. Well, thank you so much for all the hard work you put in, because I know that has to affect so much going forward. Well, and my attention to detail, which I am proud of in my quilting, also stood me in good stead on that kind of job. Mm -hmm. I want to jump back here a minute. Do you have a childhood memory My mother was born and raised in Hundred, West Virginia. And every summer, as soon as school was out, we came to West Virginia and lived on the farm. Didn't always wear our shoes and helped to pick things in the garden for dinner and got to ride on horseback if my grandfather was plowing. And there was ducks and cows to milk and sheep sometimes. And so it was a completely different life than I grew up so close to the city. And I loved every minute of it. I actually now live on a little 32-acre farm that is absolutely beautiful today with the redbud trees all in bloom. That's probably my fondest childhood memory. We didn't even stay to collect our report cards. (laughs) The minute school was finished, we were off to the farm. How long did you get to stay there all summer or just several weeks? We went 
in early, early June, and we always stayed until after 4th of July. So exactly how many weeks or whatever it was, I don't really remember. My father did not go with us. He was still practicing, of course. He would go halfway, and then my mother's sister and her husband would come halfway to Bedford, Pennsylvania, and we would get in their vehicle, which was a pickup truck. And all of us kids sat in the back of a pickup truck from there all the way to 100, which, of course, you couldn't do today at all, just with a tarp laid over us, over our legs. And it was a fun ride. Always a fun ride. I'm picturing the roads probably weren't what they are today either. So it took a lot longer. They weren't. The Pennsylvania Turnpike was not completely finished much past Bedford until some years later. Actually, it was completed through Pennsylvania in 1950. We would go Bedford and then to Donegal and get off and go down through Uniontown to eventually come into 100. So I don't really know how much further all of it was done. So you were a nurse and you mentioned working in Columbus. How did you get to Columbus and then how did you get to here? I graduated from nursing, but when I was a senior in nursing, my freshman little sister was Ginger Zeziger, Rick's sister. And by the time I was a senior, I didn't go back home to Philadelphia very often. We were working a great deal of the time in the hospital. And I went home with her for a weekend uh, in October. And that's where I met Rick. And life was never quite the same. But we were in Wheeling for 17 years and then transferred to West Palm Beach, Florida. He was part of a accounting partnership with the headquarters in Beaver Falls, but the wheeling office was a little partner heavy and the partner in Florida left to do something else. And so we got elected to go and look at that position and we did make the move. And we were in Florida only three years. And then he went to work for a client, but he wasn't available to the clients he had had for the 17 years. And that was when Assurex International, Assurex Global they are now, offered him a job. They were one of his clients, but then he went to work for them as the chief financial officer And they moved us back to Columbus. And we lived in Westerville for 17 years. And then from Westerville, we retired back to central Pennsylvania. But we had two places. We had a little hunting camp in West Virginia. And we had a place in Mount Gretna, Pennsylvania, just 12 miles east of Hershey, It got to be too hard to keep up to places. Insurances were going up. Taxes were going up. Repairs were starting to eat into our ability to pay. 
And it seemed like no matter which house we were in, you jumped into working on whatever had to be worked on to free you up then to go back to the other place. So we decided that it seemed like we were always coming on the 70 corridor from Wheeling, where my nursing classmates still get together for lunch once a month, to our son that still lives in Westerville. I have a sister in Cleveland, a sister in Cincinnati. So many times we were on the 70 corridor and he just sat down and brought up on the computer acreage along Interstate 70. And it brought up Belmont County first and then Guernsey County and then eventually Muskingum County. And there were a couple of properties that we did schedule to see with a real estate agent. This was one of the properties. And we just fell in love with this. The house being one floor plan was great, especially at our ages. Although we do have a completely finished basement, but we did that after we came here. And it has a wonderful, huge pole barn on the property that our boys think is pretty okay. So we've been very, very happy here. And it's beautiful here. We're recording now in early spring and the redbud and the dogwood starting to come out. So it is such a pretty time of year. Definitely is. Mary, is there anything else about your family that you wanted to share with us? Well, I am one of five girls and our mother sewed all the time made us clothing or altered clothing to keep passing it down. So there was always needles and pins and rickrack and scissors and threads. And at a very early age, I started sewing. Now I sewed these lovely garments by hand, but I have a doll. Her name's Bitsy, and I've had her now for 75 years. And this is one of her outfits. I hand pieced it. I can see the rather large stitches. But according to my mother, I really was pretty young when I attempted this. You notice that buttonhole is just one big hole in the material. I evidently didn't quite have enough rickrack because there's a space <laughs> missing in the <laughs> middle of the back. I think at some later time is when I added the sewing machine sewing to it, but it was hand piece to start with. So neat. I do have three wonderful sons, John, Chris, and Craig, and they have added immeasurably to my life. From the time they were born, they're interesting people. They've done interesting things in their lives. And although their father and I funded the beginning of their education, they've each seen the benefit of continuing their educations. And I'm extremely proud of all three of them. We also have six grandchildren, the youngest of which is two. And I believe the oldest is about 32. So we have a time span group of grandchildren, but they are extremely entertaining. 
Now, if you had the opportunity to talk to your great-great-grandchildren, what do you want them to know about yourself? I would like them to know that I was the wife to the man I loved for nearly 53 years. I'm a mother to three wonderful sons. I'm a nurse and I'm a quilter. And the quilts I leave behind are a gift of my hands. They're going to be able to see those and hear your words. I love that. Besides quilts, are there any other crafts that you do? I knit, crochet. I can tat, although I haven't done it for a pretty good long time. Any kind of handheld needlework. When I was a child, my parents, grandparents, great-grandparents had a summer house in central Pennsylvania. And there was no television, no telephone. And we would go there for the whole summer frequently. Each of us had our little projects, our little tin can of embroidery floss. And mine, of course, was always in a mess, but you could still clip a piece and embroider. So at a very early age, we were taught to embroider hand towels and pillowcases and tea towels by the boatload. If I got my thread all in knots, I would hand it over. My mother would straighten it all out and give it back to me. And that was how I learned to knit also. I was very young and she would cast it on and I would go to town till I had it a mess and then hand it over to her and she would straighten it all out and give it back to me and I would keep on going. And so very quickly learning took place. We would go to a supervised playground there every day, five days a week from nine to noon. And they had gimp projects where you made lanyards and bracelets and different crafty projects. And I always enjoyed working on all of that. Dad hammered nails into the posts at the summer house so we could hook the part of the lanyard on the hook. And then you had tension against working on the design. We always were encouraged to be busy. I can't ever say to my mother that I didn't know what to do with myself or that I was bored. That never occurred. We just always had things to keep working on. And she saw the benefit in purchasing the tea towels or dish rags, pillowcases, guest towels, dresser scarves that we all worked on. And many of them are all still in that summer house. So any kind of handheld needlework is a favorite. So that summer house is still in the family. It is. We are the fourth generation to still have it. And the family uses it. And when we aren't using it, it's available on VRBO. How neat. Are there other hobbies that you do? I did take violin lessons for 13 years, but I still can play, but the arthritis isn't happy. So I really don't do too much with that. I'm curious, you mentioned a flower garden. Do you work in the flower garden? I have a little garden out back that I just put a few vegetables in. 
I have learned that zucchini is extremely prolific, even if you only have one plant. And cucumbers act the same way. So I am not planning to put in very much this year. Maybe a few rows of beets, a couple of tomato plants, basil and parsley. I like having those fresh and maybe just flowers in the far end. But it's very easy here in the country to go to farmer's market and be able to get quantities for a particular recipe of cucumbers or beets or, but I missed out last year. And by the time I was ready to do beets, there were none to be had. So that's why I thought I'll plant two or three rows of beets. And that way I'll for sure have beets to can. I do enjoy canning. My children enjoy coming. They call it the save a lot. That's the canned things in the basement on the shelves. And they always want to be sure that there's something there. Is it okay if I go to the save a lot and see what I can take home? And I'm always tickled to death for them to do that. That's great. I love that interaction with family. Do you think any of your hobbies or other crafts show up in your quilting? Well, like I mentioned before, the attention to detail that perhaps got fine-tuned through nursing because you had to be observant, I'm sure stand in good stead when it comes to my quilting and competing in quilting because, of course, I have competed several times in quilting. Some of the pieces have done very well, some not so well. And I still enjoy working on those because you work more diligently, I think, on a competition piece than a piece that I know from start to finish is just going to be put on the bed here at home. Definitely. Tell me about who introduced you to quilting. Well, as I said earlier, with my lovely doll clothes, I always sewed or embroidered or what have you. And in 1980, my youngest sister was going to be married. And my mother's sister, Aunt Leela, was at our house at Christmas time. And Holly just badgered Aunt Leela to death about wanting a quilt, wanting a quilt. Please make me a quilt. Well, I thought I'd like to make the quilt. So I quick got a hold of Aunt Leela when Christmas was over and I said, Aunt Leela, don't make her a quilt because I want to do it. And it was very simplistic. It was a 16 squares where a solid color went through those prints on the diagonal and the prints were chosen according to whatever the color of the solid was that was going through the middle. And then there was a border all the way around that block of that same solid color. I was just happy as could be with the quilt and I got it together. And Holly's favorite color was Ashes of Roses, which is a quote from the Thornbirds, a book. And it is what we call mauve. 
or dusty rose kind of color, but it was not an in color at the time. And I wound up using a sheet for the back because it had some of those dusty rose flowers. And I think I used parts of another sheet that was the border on the top that did have that color, but you couldn't buy a solid that was dusty rose. Anyway, I got the top together and I said to Aunt Leela, Aunt Leela, can I borrow your quilt frames? And she said, oh, sure. And she dropped them off on her way to some meeting in Wheeling. And I said, and how do I do this? And she said, oh, if everything's on the square, it'll just go together fine. And at that time, I didn't really know what on the square was. But luckily, whoever had quilted last on this frame, there was several clipped threads that were quilt thread weight threads that had been sewed to strips of ticking that were nailed onto each pole. So that was how I figured out that the backing gets sewed to the pole and then the batting and then the top. And I would roll and then roll it back on the other pole till I finally felt like I had it loaded. And then I began quilting like I was embroidering. So I was going down through the material and then pushing up from the back, up through the material and down and back and forth. And Aunt Leela was coming for another meeting. And I said, Aunt Leela, bring your thimble. Because I said, I am never going to get finished. Well, she came and she said, oh, well, the stitches are real nice, but that's not how you do it. And with that, she reached under the quilt frame and with a rocking motion, quilted towards herself or right to left and had quilted a whole block in just the evening that we sat there trying to do it. And once I saw what it was I was supposed to be doing, I eventually caught on. And if the planets were in alignment and I was in the mood, once my boys had gone to bed, maybe I would quilt till 2, 2.30 in the morning. And then there were other days when no matter what you did, nothing went smoothly and I knew not to keep quilting. But I eventually did finish that quilt in plenty of time for the wedding. And I think they loved it. They used it until it fell apart. So Aunt Leela was always my inspiration and my teacher when it came to hand quilting. My mother, I think she could quilt, but I never saw her quilt. She loved embroidery. And I still have several things that she embroidered, but then Aunt Leela quilted them. So they worked together on that. Yes. And they were two sisters of 11. Aunt Leela, the oldest, and mother was second. So they were quite a pair. Describe your favorite quilt. I thought about this question at length, and my favorite quilt is one that I call Lunch. It was a competition piece for the Hoffman Challenge. There was a piece of fabric that had a very ugly iris, and all I ever saw in it was a goldfish. 
And so this is, you know, the iris with a few extra petals added. And the inspiration for this quilt is actually the Ralston Purina ad in People magazine. The fishbowl in the magazine, of course, was about the size of a quarter. And I had never planned to put the cat in it. But the cat was leaning over like he wanted to get into the fishbowl in the original picture. But I was getting my hair done, which is how I came to see this magazine. And like many ideas, all of a sudden you have this unexpected light bulb go on. And then I couldn't let go of the idea of the cat. So I went back to that shop a week later explained what I was working on and the Hoffman Challenge and so forth, that I'd seen this picture in People magazine. Took me a while because there's a lot of People magazines in the beauty shop, but I finally found the one I had seen. And I went to the desk and said, you know, would you mind letting me tear out this picture? And she said, oh, let me see that magazine. Oh, that's an old one. You can have the whole thing. I said, oh, thank you very much. And away I went. So I blew the cat up several, several times until I felt he was big enough to go with my fishbowl and this lovely orange goldfish. But one of the reasons that I love this piece or loved working on it was because the number of processes that were employed to pull this off in this little fishbowl, there are a hundred pieces of fabric worked in a color wash type of exercise to appear like water. And I was flying on U.S. air from somewhere to somewhere, I don't remember. And the in-flight magazine showed a picture of a comfortable chair and an end table that had a fishbowl on it. And it had striped wallpaper in the background. And that is how I knew that the stripes were distorted in the fishbowl water. So I have striped wallpaper behind the cat and I have everything just offset in the fishbowl so that the stripes don't line up. And that was completely on purpose. That fishbowl also showed dirty rocks at the bottom and then lighter color rocks on top. And I went on the hunt and worked till I had dirty rocks on the bottom and shinier, greenier rocks up above. The Hoffman Challenge, I always liked. First, it gave you a starting off place because you had to use one fabric that they chose. And I could usually pull things from my stash to go with those, but they only required that you use a recognizable amount of the fabric. It didn't say how much, but you couldn't use it from the back. Always had to be from the front of the fabric. So the cat's eye is a part of a leaf. And I have a flower, probably a seaweedy flower in the fishbowl that was part of the material. And the cat would have had more stripes on his face, but I was running out of time. You are also looking at the wrong side of the material in the light spaces. 
This was a reverse applique project. All of the lines are drawn on the darker fabric and cut away to expose the lighter fabric underneath. But I had had some disasters not having very good contrast. And so, since he's sort of a mythical cat, and I could have him any way I wanted, I go high contrast or go home. So the gray that shows through is actually from the wrong side of the material. But I manipulated him. In the picture, he had more feet on the ground than he has in my piece. I fixed it so he looks like he's eye to eye with this fish and reaching out to kind of get the fish. I added embroidery for his whiskers. And if I had to outline something that didn't really have a separate piece, then I use embroidery, which I have many, many years of experience doing. And the embroidery helps to delineate some of those areas that your eye would just pass over as one lump piece of material and I could get some definition there. The other thing I liked about the Hoffman was it didn't tell you what shape it had to be. It just couldn't be larger than a total of 140 inches in circumference. So that left a lot for me to play with. And this does not have a squared off bottom. It's actually the curved edge of a table. So believe it or not, I did compete in the Hoffman Challenge four times. Three of the pieces traveled the country for a year, and this one did not. I sent it in, and it came back. So I was disappointed, but I have had more offers to buy this piece than I would care to tell you. And it's because people are in love with the cat, which wasn't ever supposed to be part of this piece at all. One of the things I noticed when you pulled it out was you did so well on the eye of the cat. It really looks like it's looking directly at your fish and it looks hungry. (laughs) And the fish is so amazing. That's the perfect color for a goldfish. I had the best time making that piece, and it didn't travel. We're always surprised, aren't we? Mm Mm-hmm. What tool are you so happy that you have to quilt with? I have several tools that I can't live without. Probably something I use every day is a number two mechanical pencil. And I use the mechanical pencils because if I get heavy handed, the lead breaks, reminds me to back off. Also, the lead doesn't get any wider. It's not like a sharpened regular number two pencil that if you draw three lines, the width of that pencil lead is getting wider. I buy them at Staples or Office Depot or one of those by the box. And often if I teach, I hand those out to the students if there's something that we're supposed to be drawing with a pencil. I mean, I feel that strongly about having them. And I'm not sure I even have a sharpenable regular pencil in the house any longer. The other 
item. And I will list a couple different ones. I have a custom thimble. I actually have three of them. It's an investment in equipment. They are not inexpensive at about $100 a piece, but I spent an awful lot of money collecting thimbles to try and find one that would fit and had the recessed head, the needle didn't slip off. I went to the Applique Society show that was held at the Hilton Hotel in Easton, Ohio. I always circle all the vendors first before I decide what I'm going to really look at and buy. And I passed a booth that had nothing but thimbles. And person by the name of Tommy Lane is whose thimbles they were. And I said, I need a thimble. And she held hands with me and she said, that's exactly what you need, a custom thimble. And you will see that this thimble is not round. It has been bent to fit my arthritic knuckle. And it has the recessed head. These thimbles, I have worn them through and sent them back to her and had it replaced or repaired, I don't know what she did to it, about four times. So that's how much I am wearing a thimble. And I have one here in my sewing pouch. I have one in a necklace that's in my purse. And I have one at my sewing machine. So wherever I am, I have a custom thimble. The next thing that is extremely important to me, and I am very grateful to her, is Karen K. Buckley Scissors. With the soft handles and the very big openings, people with arthritic fingers can get them into these scissors to cut. And before, once the arthritis got bad, I just could hardly get into the scissors, even small snips. So I now have Karen K. Buckley scissors in all of the sizes that she has. And I wouldn't trade those soft handles for anything. Another favorite is freezer paper. Good old Reynolds freezer paper. I use it for all of my applique and I can design on it. Another competition piece that was part of the Hoffman Challenge was a stained glass piece and it was designed. This is the width of a piece of freezer paper. So I could draw on it and erase on it and what have you. And this piece was photographed and in a national magazine. The fabric that we had to use that year called Tiffany Butterflies. And so that was where I got the idea. When you think of the word Tiffany, you think of stained glass. I'd never done stained glass. I researched it a lot. I talked to a lot of people. Eventually, I figured out that I had to make my own letting. And that, I think, has been a huge difference between using prepackaged bias strips versus seeing Kona cotton, which I think is an excellent product, and all be hand prepared and so on and so forth. Another 
piece of equipment I cannot live without, and that's a sandpaper workboard. It holds on to the fabric to where when I have ironed a little pattern piece for applique, I can trace around that pattern piece and the material doesn't walk. So the accuracy that I'm able to get improves. I just used the sandpaper workboard in the class I took Friday because we were asked to put a seam allowance all the way around a very long triangle. And I was able to do that with the sandpaper workboard underneath a piece of fabric. If you were just trying to do it on a table, that material walks away from the point of your pencil all the time. The last item in my absolute have-to-have favorite things is that I have a vintage 1940-ish Proctor Silex iron. I've only had it this winter. My son found it on the internet, brand new, still in the box. It has the wrapped cord like in the olden days, but it is metal. It gets hot. It irons like a dream and it doesn't shut off. What a time waster those irons are that shut off where I sew and hop up to press and go back to sewing the next piece. And then you stand there and wait until that iron heats up again. I don't have space in my house for something like that. It aggravates me. You can tell, I think, from the expression on my face, Paula, or the tone of my voice, how I feel about those kind of irons. I frequently bought extremely cheap Black and Decker irons because they didn't have that shutoff capability. And eventually those don't hold up. This is a much better iron, and I'm hoping it lives longer than I do, but I love it to death. Like I said, it is a vintage Proctor Silex iron. Has a lovely big window so you can see how much iron water is in it. I only ever have used distilled water in my irons. I know some of those other newer models tell you you can use tap water, but then it has a very lengthy cleaning process that you have to go through and push the button and it spits out its foam or chemicals or dirt or whatever is in there. This does not have that. And my mother always used distilled water in her irons and they lived a long time. And I have had excellent history with the distilled water. And my irons have held up a long time and I don't have to do all of that extraneous extra step cleaning process. So I know maybe it was just supposed to be a favorite tool, but there are just so many that I can't live without. And as I thought about this, that is the list. I bought one of those Black & Decker ones, but... They now come with shut off. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason I bought it was because, well, one, it looked like the one I grew up with. So I love that. And they're heavy. But I walked out of the room 
too many times without turning off my iron? Well, the way I take care of that is that the iron is on a power strip and the light over the ironing board is on the same power strip. So if that light is on, the iron's on. So it's a very easy thing to see that I haven't shut it all down yet. It's not that I'm looking for a tiny red light or something to tell me it's still on, but because that overhead light is connected to that same power strip, then I just shut the whole power strip off and I know that the iron's off and that light's off too. But I need a big visual reminder to be sure and shut it off too. Yeah. So I understand yeah. that. <laughs> the house we live in was built by my husband's great grandparent and the sewing room was Gigi's sewing room and the light switch turns off all outlets in the room when you go out. So that should be helpful. But my sewing space has expanded to the hallway in the other bedroom. <laughs> so my ironing board's not in that room. With so many steps in the process, do you like one step more than others or do you like each step along the way? I will say I enjoy each step along the way. My favorite step, of course, is putting the binding on because with every stitch that I take, I'm not getting to the next step. Every stitch I take is one more stitch closer to the end and being done. So that would definitely be my biggest part of enjoyment, especially with the Hoffman. I usually only get one idea and then I work myself into a sweat working out the problems of that idea. It's not like so many people that can take three or four ideas and then finally decide on one. That's never how it has worked for me. But I took a class with Pepper Corey, and she said, you want the design to grab the judge when they first see it, and you want the workmanship to knock their socks off when they get close to it. And so I have always continued to work on competition pieces with that in mind. And eventually the design idea evolves. They don't always work out in the end exactly the way you think they're going to when you start. And each piece that you compete with does challenge you in some way to learn something new in quilting you hadn't tried before, like stained glass or color wash or that kind of thing. And so I learn by doing each piece and sometimes it has paid dividends and I've had a lovely result as a result of it. And then other times I entered it for competition and got disqualified. So those are painful memories. But in one case, I entered a piece in the Ohio State Fair and it got disqualified, but they did hang it. And come to find out, it was the people that sorted the quilts into their categories that had put my quilt not in its right category. 
And so that was the reason it was disqualified because it was a completely pieced something or other and it got put in an applique category. But I have been disqualified eh, more times than I wish. And eventually NQA, the National Quilting Association, did away with disqualifying quilts. They did go ahead and judge them just if they didn't meet the requirements, they didn't make it be eligible for ribbon contention, but they stopped disqualifying quilts, which I thought was nice. Yeah. After all that work, that would be hard. Very hard. Share your worst quilting experience. Well, I've already segued into that, and that is being disqualified. I worked on a piece that was a cathedral window pattern, which traditionally doesn't have batting. And so therefore, there has to be a special category if you're entering it in a show. And it has to go in with like biscuit quilts or a whole cloth or something else. And that's where cathedral window falls. But in this case, I actually put batting behind bird fabric in each window so that there was batting and quilting around that bird. And my total cathedral window quilt was a tree. So therefore the birds, and I called it sanctuary. But when I got called that the piece had been disqualified because there was no quilting, I said, I'm sorry, but there was quilting. And the answer that the person who was making the call gave me was, it was at the end of the day and the judges were tired and they must have missed that. And that was when the NQA show was at Bowling Green. And I did go. That was the first NQA show I ever went to. And I did see the piece. It was hanging back in a back, back, back corner, but it had been disqualified. So that probably was one of the saddest disqualifications that I ever had. It had to be beautiful, though. I loved it. There are just so many things that we could do with our time, but we as quilters keep being called back to make more quilts. Why do you think you come back to make more quilts? Well, I love the variety of places that want them. And right now I am sewing with a group of ladies that sew for veterans. And they have a breakfast once a month put on by this veteran foundation and they hand out these quilts. They get a beautiful embroidered label with thanking the person for their service. And then it has the person's full name on it, what their service was, and then another statement. But they're beautiful. And I've helped sew labels on if that's the job they needed me to do. But I love working on those quilts. The group is only up to their requests in 2021. So they haven't even hardly started on the quilts for people who have requested them this calendar year, but that's what we work on. The foundation contributes money to these women 
to purchase fabric. And the large amounts of big backs they use, I think they buy that extra wide backing material by the bolt. It gets used up really quickly. And other ladies who have long arm machines do the quilting. I don't have to do any of the quilting, but then we get them back to put the binding on. And they prefer that the binding be put on by machine front and back, which I don't do routinely, but I do do it on those particular pieces. I also sew regularly for a group called Heartbeats. And this group has a division right here in Zanesville. And then there's one in Newark. And I found out about this through being a part of Newborns in Need, which is an organization, I believe, maybe nationwide, but there is a division of it in Newark. And that's where I got started. And they serve 28 agencies in Central Ohio with the items that the ladies who go and work on all of these blankets and booties and little mittens and The other area that they cover is fetal demise. And there are several places that need garments like that. So they really meet a need, but it's all for the newborn. And they prepare a tote bag and they load the tote bag and give it to the mom. In the case of Heartbeats, Heartbeats is a faith based organization for indigent parents. And they provide prenatal care and some education. And the parents earn points or little coupons for doing responsible things, like buying better groceries or keeping their doctor appointment or going to church. And then they can spend those points in the boutique where they get to select what they want for their baby. And the other thing I enjoy about that group is that they take items up to toddler five because this mother may have more children at home than just the newborn that she is going to have. And they do take generally used clothing or if there's, you know, big sales or something somewhere, clearance things, it's a good time to get some of those bigger sizes. But I enjoy what they do. I feel that anything I do for them, and they seem thrilled for the baby quilts that I turn out, and I have a knitted baby blanket. I work on booties all the time, but I can carry a lot of those projects with me to work on constantly. And when I finally have a grocery bag full, then I drop them off. And I like that, that I don't have to wait till I'm going to go to a newborn in the need meeting to take my pieces back when it's convenient for me, I can drop them off right here in Zanesville. But newborn in need still does supply them with items, whatever they tell them that they need. So I'm still working through the auspices of newborns in need. From the mess that you see in my sewing room, what I would like to get accomplished is way greater then I have time to do. But there's something stimulating about seeing those piles and thinking of some of those ideas because maybe I don't already have the total idea of what I want to do with that, 
but I don't want to put it away because then I know I'll forget about it. No matter what you give, there are still all kinds of places that need. And so I don't think as quilters we're ever going to run out of places for this to go. And for as long as I can, I hope to continue working on this. I know the arthritis will get worse and things will get to be more difficult, but I've seen quilters that have way more crooked fingers than mine and they're still working at their craft. And I have been to casinos. My husband loved to play cards. And when I see that busload of people get dropped off there, and that's what they have to do with their afternoon is feed money into a slot machine and just press the button and have that machine just eat up. And I know there are people that love doing that. I'm not one of them. I always could think of the things that that $20 could buy in fabric or in thread or whatever, but I feel like that isn't worthwhile time spent. I'm not producing anything that's helping anybody else. So I'm hoping that I get to continue producing things that benefit somebody else. Mm-hmm. Like you said, there's so many great organizations to help out. Well, we talked about some of the organizations that you make quilts for. Is that who you usually make your quilts for or are there others also? Well, at this time, that's who I make them and give them to. I also make other little things and I'm working on baby bibs my young guy that mows my grass and comes and helps me do a few other odds and ends. They had a new baby last month. So a little girl and I wasn't here in the beginning of February. And so I didn't get anything given to them. So I'm working on a baby quilt for the little girl, but then there's a four-year-old. So I also am working on a blanket to give him. But my young grandchildren, even my old grandchildren, I make quilts for all of them, not every year, but I keep everybody in blankets. Morgan is just two, and her quilt was a strawberry tea party. But she got Peppa Pig pillowcases for her birthday. And then Carter's quilt, he is heavily into monster trucks. And I made a monster truck quilt for him. And I did get to go to my very first monster jam about a couple, three weeks ago, maybe. Very exciting. A lot of dust, a lot of noise. We all had headphones, but at least now I can converse with Carter one-to-one, knowledgeable about monster jam and monster trucks and the names of some of these like El Tor Loco, which I would have never known anything about previous. It's amazing all the details that these little ones know about their favorite subjects. At that particular show, Grave Digger was the big winner. (laughs) So what are you working on right now? Well, I'm working on those baby bibs. 
I have a veteran quilt that's a kit that they put together from the fabrics that the foundation buys. It's a panel to start with, and then it has a variety of borders and some interesting corner stars. I have binding that I'm putting on on the quilt beside my chair. And the table runner that I started in Friday's class, they want you to hurry up and get those finished so that everybody can show and tell at the next meeting. So I have all of those things in process. I'm not really happy unless I have about, oh, 30 or so things going on at once or in some form. Even if I'm collecting the fabrics and have the pattern I'm going to use, I consider that in the mix and getting worked on. So I stay busy on something all the time. Always have something ready to take with me at a minute's notice. Because a lot of these projects, you don't have to just be at your sewing machine every second. And I do enjoy hand piecing. I have a piece here to show you that is a fall piece where these leaves, 30 some of them, are all hand pieced. Really? And I actually took a class in hand piecing in 1987 and 88 to get to be more accurate. I didn't have the current Foff sewing machine I have now that has the walking foot built in. I just had a singer. And the layers of fabric, hard as you tried, they would walk away from each other to where intersections weren't as perfect as I wanted them to be. And when you compete in quilting, some of those things really become important. So I took a class from this NQA certified teacher, Helen Van Epp, EPP, and learned how to hand piece. And I love it. And I love the portability of it. You trace out your pieces and play in your fabrics and fix your little baggie. And then you need your thimble, scissors, and thread. And I just routinely use like a light gray thread rather than carry a variety with me. So all of these were hand-pieced. And all the ones in the center were appliqued, which is another favorite technique that I enjoy. This piece I talked about on Saturday. This was the piece that... I got Best Workmanship in the West Palm Beach Quilt Guild and also the Obsessive Compulsive Prize. They said it looked like I didn't know when to stop decorating the tree. It's a Christmas piece. I call it Old Fashioned Christmas. Describe your sewing space. My sewing space is an extra bedroom that has two windows. So I have wonderful natural light, which seems to help me with the actual colors of things. It has no wasted space. The distance between my sewing machine, the ironing board, and the cutting mat is probably two steps each. So it doesn't burn up a lot of calories, but it is very efficient. And you see that I have piles everywhere. My sewing room is always a mess. I have a bulletin board that just has all kinds of things hanging on it. There's something about my brain that needs all that visual stimulation all the time. Although 
I can't stand that in the whole rest of the house. But in my sewing space and creative space, I think I need all of that. I have an entire wall that is nothing but little cages of fabric assorted by color. I didn't always do that, but eventually when I did decide that I would sort it by color, I realized I didn't own orange. And thank goodness, because I bought a pattern that I truly loved that was all pumpkins. And I couldn't even start the pattern because I didn't own any orange. And I was teaching quilting at Calico Cupboard in Westerville, a store which is no longer. I was teaching every Sunday. So every week I would buy a piece of orange until I had collected enough pieces to be able to make that quilt. My mother always said a busy workshop is never straight. And so I try to live by those words best I can and never really straighten it up. When my sister comes to visit, I have to rid off one table, but that just adds to the piles that have it placed somewhere else. Share a quilting tip. The quilting tip that I have, and I didn't invent this statement, but it is buy the best and cry once. If you have purchased the best equipment and the best materials that you can afford or find, the ending result of what you're doing will be better. And there is a story behind that statement. As a child, there was not fast food restaurants. There was a diner in Lebanon, Pennsylvania that my father loved going to. It was called Sprecher's Diner. And right across the highway was his field of Hereford cattle. And my father just loved Hereford cattle. Now, he was a dentist, so not a farmer or anything like that. But he just loved the color and their white faces. And he said to Joseph Sprecher one time, why? Are your hamburgers so good? And his answer was, buy the best and cry once. And my father jumped on that statement with both feet, and we heard it from then on. Now, I will tell you that at some times I needed two blouses instead of one rather expensive one. So I would rethink that statement slightly. It's like shopping at Sam's Club. I don't necessarily need two strapped together gigantic ketchups when my cupboard is only going to hold one. So you are reevaluating that all the time. But when it comes to your quilting supplies, your scissors that you're going to count on, your rotary blades, the cutter, the mat, And the quality of the gray goods you are buying, there is no substitute for buying the best and crying once. I had not heard that statement before, so that is a great one to add to my thought process. My assumption always is you're quilting as a hobby, and then you decided to become a quilt judge. Well, I decided to become a certified teacher first. 
And it was because of that certified teacher that I had class from in Florida, Helen Van Epp. After two weeks with her, I knew that was the direction I wanted my quilting to take me. I felt like I could only make so many that I'm going to hang on the wall or put on the bed or keep or what have you or gift. And then after being with her, working towards being that certified teacher was a wonderful journey for me to get your lesson plan and your thoughts on paper and what have you. And I'm not a teacher by education. So getting all those kinds of things prepared and everything was all new for me. But I worked through their process and their questions and it has evolved. What I had to do to pass that review is different than what the certified teachers are asked. However, there is no certified teacher program currently when NQA ended that certified teacher program ended as well. There was talk about the teachers starting it up or continuing it. The judges did do that and develop their own agency and continue to have a candidate program and certify judges. But the teachers were not able to keep that together. So I am a certified teacher through the National Quoting Association first. And then I moved into being a certified judge. It took me nine years, but I had a very busy household and a busy family. And I was working at that time too. So it's a lot of study, a lot of research. It was quite a paper to write on all of these various techniques Things I really didn't know very much about, but had to know enough about to be able to know what the pitfalls of that process were, like trapunto or chenille work. I need to be able to recognize those techniques and have a regulated list of things that the judge would look for. I'm constantly learning. The judges get together either by Zoom meetings or we have retreats. We are meeting in Shipshawana, Indiana in September for a week. I also was to Iowa for the Iowa Quilt Show. We were able to have a large number of judges meet. We did certify, I think, three candidates. So Each candidate sits for a panel review. Three judges are holding that. And three other judges have read their paperwork. And the judges stay very active with the candidates. And I'm glad that that program is continuing. We used to recertify ourselves every three years. And I would have some lengthy details to keep track of. Now we are recertifying yearly. And as a whole, I would say that the judging program is placing much more benefit and much more emphasis on design than we once did. We were a little bit more heavily weighted in workmanship. So that part of the process for me is also interesting. I love seeing what people try, things I never would have thought of. 
It just keeps it very interesting all the time. And we also have a newsletter that one of the sections is always on some problem or question or something the judge has seen out there working and wants to know how the other judges feel about it. One of the topics of concern a little bit is the pre-cuts, the pre-fused applique, pre-cut everything. We can't give credit for the design. You can't give credit for the fabric choices. So it's only the workmanship that is going to be evaluated in a case like that. But a lot of people enjoy those and it keeps them quilting and being engaged in this fiber art. So we're going to have to come up with better ways of evaluating some of those kind of projects. And embroidery machines have made a huge difference in the quilting world. You can even quilt your quilt with an embroidery machine. So, you know, we're evaluating that kind of thing. And many of the big shows do keep track of the kind of machine that has been used to produce a piece. And that is very helpful, especially when it comes to special awards. You're not giving a special award to a fabulous long armor and it's been done on a home sewing machine, hand guided and all of that. Those people are competing against people that have accomplished what they've accomplished and so forth. It's ever changing, isn't it? Ever, ever, ever changing. Can you tell me the difference between a quilt judge and an appraiser? A quilt appraiser, and the AQS is the only one right now that has a certified appraiser program. They are, in my estimation, a quilt historian. They are able to date fabrics and know whether it is a time span quilt where Part of it is fabrics from this era, and then part of it is from another era. They can put a value to the quilt for insurance purposes. Any appraisal is only good for five years, however, because the market keeps changing. And so then you need to go be reappraised based on what the market is doing at this time. So it is very in-depth. They do a great deal of study, and then they sit for a panel review, too, to become a certified appraiser. And they are then listed on the certified appraiser list. You can be an appraiser, but not necessarily a certified appraiser. And so for paying my money, I would want a certified appraiser to be handling that item. There's been some very interesting historical programs that appraisers have done for the judges and things in the fabrics over the years, the way fabrics and designs in the fabrics have evolved and what those all mean and so on and so forth was very, very interesting. But the judges used to have a retreat in Ripley, West Virginia in the fall. And I loved going to Ripley. It was affordable for your weekend for the room and board. 
to me, it was very affordable. And it was mostly the people that lived in this area that attended because it wasn't serviced well by an airport and some of those kinds of things for the judges that lived further away. But we would discuss all the time, you know, what you're seeing. We'd also talk about design at length and encourage each other to be understanding and learning what anybody else is seeing, because we're not always out there at all the same places. But a certified appraiser is an invaluable person to have available. And usually they judge at shows with the quilt hanging. Most big shows will have a certified appraiser there. They don't always use the same appraiser every year. They will invite one one year and she handles all the appraisal duties and then they'll have another one at another time. The people that are wonderful historians love being certified appraisers too to go along with it. They have quite a library of information. Barbara Brackman and her fabric dating books and block books and so on and so forth. She's been a wealth of information to the certified appraiser. Thank you for answering that. I really appreciate the information there. I had down the name of your business and how you came up with that name, but I don't think that necessarily applies. I did have a quilt and cross-stitch business back in 1985, 86, and 87. I had a partner. Her name was Carol Weaver. I was actually the cross-stitch side of that business, but I don't do too awful much cross-stitch anymore. We were very successful, and then we got transferred to Florida, so that was the end of that business for me. But I enjoyed being caught up in that, and after being one of five girls, I wasn't very vocal, especially to men. And men were who we were dealing with to purchase our fabrics and to repair our machines and all that sort of thing. And I got so much better at saying, I want this fixed. And if it isn't fixed, you just come and take it back. <laughs> Which, oh my goodness, that was a huge education for me to even be able to come out and say that. But we held classes and had fabric. We started with our collection of fabric was all flat folds and we put it on bolts because, you know, we were new to it and you could get a flat fold bundle. It looked like it had a few yards and it gave us a variety to put on the shelf. But eventually the producers came out with making 15 yard bolts. So it gave us the opportunity instead of it being a 50 yard bolt, which ate up all of our money, we could have a little bit better variety. We don't realize all the iterations the industry has gone through, but that's mm -hmm. interesting on the different size of the bolts. You've been able to give these wonderful lectures. How exciting was it? Or how did you feel when you knew you were going to give that first lecture and people started signing up? Well, the first class I ever taught, I was actually working for a shop. I was a hand quilter to start out with. I do have a long arm and I am still learning how to do anything with it. But the first class I ever taught was in hand quilting. And the shop gave me this book 
and asked me if I would teach a hand quoting class. And so I worked through that particular book and developed my little sample and class schedule and what have you. But that was the beginning. I was a nervous wreck. And when I finished, I thought, oh, there was so many million things I should have told them. I should have said. And so I second guessed myself for a long time, but I had a good time. I enjoyed myself. And they seemed to hang on every word. I loved that and worked and worked and worked on being a better teacher all the time. I felt as an NQA certified teacher, it was important to give the student their money's worth. And if they asked me anything, I shared whatever I had, made copies for them, whatever, gave them choices. It wasn't just, you have to do this pattern and you have to do it my way and so on and so forth. But I try to feel like I'm giving my audience what they came to hear and maybe a little more and that they would feel that whatever money they spent to come and hear it, they would consider worthwhile. Mm -hmm. I know the lecture you gave on Saturday, I went home and I used one of the tips that you mentioned that day, that night. <laughs> I doubt if there were very many people that did that. <laughs> But if anything I said was helpful to anybody or to help them keep stitching, that's what I'm out there to do. And anytime I have class or talk, I always try and give a handout that has all my information on it, that if you have a question, don't be hung up to where it derails your work. You call, chat about it, be able to move ahead. That's the most important thing to keep the people that love doing this continuing to be successful with their project. Mm -hmm. You mentioned you became a certified judge. Right. Do you want to describe a little bit more the different steps you had to take to become that certified judge? I started into the judging process probably in 19... 98 or 96 or somewhere about there. I already was a certified teacher in 1981. So I'd been a certified teacher for a good while. And the arthritis was getting a little bit angrier. And I thought I wanted to be able to stay connected to quilting and to move into judging was the logical thing to do. So I sent to NQA for the paperwork to become a certified judge and the packet came. And I look down through the questions and it's lengthy. There's like 30 questions. And then the last question has 45 parts. And I didn't start into it right away. But one of the things you need to be doing is judging. I wasn't a certified judge, but there are many small places that would like a judge and don't necessarily want to pay for certified judging prices. And there's many, many little shows that use the local home ec teacher or the 4-H leader or, 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 and those are great. And it's what those smaller shows can afford to have. And those people that are connected to quilting or make them or whatever certainly can 
let the quilts speak for themselves and select something to put the ribbons on. Those judges don't necessarily give you a critique back. They're not evaluating your design process. They're not evaluating the workmanship to give you possibly a suggestion where you can improve. They are strictly assigning the ribbons. The certified judge usually is asked to give a critique. And that takes a fair amount of practice to be seeing the quilt, generating your comment, and conveying your thoughts to the scribe in something that makes sense to go back to the entrant. The certified judge puts in a lot of time early on before you really, now it's even more time they want you out there judging and being sure that you enjoy this. And there's a course that is now given. I took it in Tucson, Arizona. It's a two-day judging course. And they hold up all kinds of blocks. And we worked on learning the names of a lot of those patterns. We also worked on writing down very quickly a statement or a comment about this block because you have to work quickly. And that takes practice also. There were just all kinds of facets that were covered. I would offer myself to judge like the Lancaster County Fair or the Pumpkin Show for free if they would pay my mileage. And the lady over the phone said, lady, We pay $35. You can apply that to your honorarium or to your mileage. Do you want the job? And of course, I said yes. And I've judged the pumpkin show several times since then. Most delightful part of the pumpkin show is the meal that the judges get fed. We start at four o'clock, we judge for a while, and then walk up the alley a couple of blocks to this church and have always the most wonderful meal. And then you go back and finish your judging. Because I was working some of these little judging jobs in to get a little bit of experience at making these kinds of decisions, took me quite a while to get a little bit of experience. And then when I finally did start on the paperwork, that was lengthy. And of course, it had to be all typed. And I had a friend that's an English major and she would review my work for spelling and punctuation and all of that ate up time. And I submitted my paperwork and it didn't pass the first time. And you get two tries at paperwork, but once it's passed, it's passed. And then you get two tries at paneling. And of course I did not pass the first time. And I evaluated things that I felt I could do differently the next time and tried to present a more professional appearance and keep my demeanor in a more professional way. I had a wonderful nurse at the American Red Cross. Her name was Gwen Baxter. And when you were on a mobile with Gwen, you never wondered who the in-charge person was. And as we went into facilities and high schools and so on and so forth, 
Gwen carried herself in a method that wherever we were, Gwen was the in-charge go-to person. After meeting her and observing how she handled herself, I realized that is how I wanted to be perceived. I've always been a professional person my whole life in my nursing, so it wasn't as big a stretch to work towards that. Like I said, it took me nine years to become a certified judge, and I have been a certified judge since 2006. I've enjoyed it. And as long as I can still stand up and work around the table, I hope to for more years to come. Well, it's neat that you've experienced both sides of that with entering the competitions yourself and now being able to judge in them that you understand what they're going through. Well, and I always say to my scribes, if what I'm saying doesn't make sense to you, it's not going to make sense to the person getting this back. And as often as I possibly can, dealing with the time constraints, I try to review all those judging sheets that the scribe has written and dot the I's and cross the T's and maybe change the spelling or go back and look at the quilt. I'll have a couple where it really didn't make any sense and I'm not sure I'm thinking of the right quilt to add something. I go back. And if the quilts are still in a pile or they've taken them away or whatever, the shows are great about having a photograph of that entry. And I can go back to that entry. It's like, oh, yes, yes. You know, I do remember what I said there and so on and so forth. I like smaller shows. They're not quite as exhausting. But now in my career at my age and what have you, you know, to be on the show for two, two and a half days and that sort of thing. A two-day show I have judged a couple of times, but I'm dead. I'm exhausted at the end of it. So I prefer to say yes frequently to smaller local things. Mm -hmm. But I do enjoy it thoroughly. You can really tell you love what you do, and that's great to see. Tell us where we can find you. I do have a website. It is just maryzeziger.com, www.maryzeziger.com. And that's Z-E-S-I-G-E-R. And I do have on that website my email address, which is very simple, M for Mary at hotmail.com. And I am listed on the certified judging website. We're listed not only by state, but we are also listed in another list alphabetically. And I think I'm at the end. (laughs) So you can find me lots of ways for teaching or judging. And I do have even more lectures then are currently posted on the website. My newest one is called A Walk Down Memory Lane. I will be doing it for the Mississippi Valley Quilters in Iowa in October. And it is the wonderful influences that Ruby Short McKim has made on us as quilters. And at the end of that program, 
One of the things I do is inherit. And I get given all kinds of things by somebody that is going to a nursing home or has passed away. And I love being given the fabric or the project in process. And I do the best I can to finish as many of those pieces as I can. Love thinking about that quilter and what they were doing. And I try to keep going in that vein as best I can. And I have done that many, many times. My family wonders why I spend so much time on the other guy's project, but I never feel that way about it. I feel a kinship to that quilter that started. And at the end of that program called A Walk Down Memory Lane, I say, never wonder what you leave behind. It will find its way to a person who will love it and know what to do with it. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. You can find more stories on aquilterslife.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so each episode will be downloaded automatically. Also, I want to hear about you and your wonderful quilts. Please contact me, Paula Chamberlain, through the website to set up an interview. And as always, thanks for listening.